BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. There is a growing movement calling on governments to defund the police as nationwide protests continue over the killing of George Floyd. It's a provocative idea. On today's show, we're going to look at whether people think it's good policy. Cap Radio's Scott Rod has more on what exactly these kinds of long overdue police reforms might look like in real life. Defunding the police doesn't necessarily mean eliminating law enforcement. Matthew Barge with consulting firm 21st Century Policing Solutions says it's more about reallocating funds. It means that there are other solutions that are stepping in to take the burden off of what we've always forced police officers to do. He says money from police budgets could be shifted to form a response team of medical and social workers to assist people experiencing homelessness or mental health crises. That would alleviate the burden on law enforcement, though it could mean fewer officers on the street. Police unions so far are critical of the idea. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti recently proposed cutting the city's police budget by up to $150 million, a suggestion the LAPD union strongly opposes. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. And mayors around the state have a lot of say in the debate over defunding police departments. That's because they have a significant influence over what goes into their city budgets. Some of them are resisting calls to reallocate police funding, saying it's not realistic. The city of San Jose released its budget just yesterday, and the mayor there says defunding urban police departments is the wrong idea at the worst possible time. KQED's Aditi Bandlamudi has more. In a statement, Mayor Sam Licardo wrote, quote, Efforts to defund police budgets will undermine substantive efforts at police reform. That puts him at odds with San Francisco's London Breed, who announced plans to redirect funds from San Francisco's police department to community programs. Protesters throughout the Bay Area are demanding a host of reforms to force accountability from officers and departments when police brutality happens. Just last week, an implicit bias trainer for the San Jose PD was struck by a rubber bullet during a protest, leading Licardo to call for a full review of San Jose's use of force policies. For the California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi. No doubt police unions will stand in opposition to many of the reforms that are being proposed in this moment. But what about the officials who run those departments? We wondered how much of an appetite for change there is at the top. Joining us for more on that is Professor David Kennedy. He's the director of the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Good morning. Good morning. 
As someone who is in touch with a lot of police departments around the country, including some here in California, what's your sense of the discussion that's happening within those departments, within the power structure? I I think the the universal recognition is this is different. The idea that the Minneapolis City Council would have said, we have a veto-proof majority and we are going to eliminate the Minneapolis Police Department would have been unimaginable two weeks ago. That the, the mayor of L.A. would take $150 million away from the police department and pledge to give it to communities. It's still only 5% or so of the LAPD budget, but that would have been unimaginable two weeks ago. There are all kinds of things wrong with policing, but the folks who have been trying to work on policing from the inside have in many ways been blocked by pressures and constraints and laws that they have not been able to change. Changing that kind of thing requires a change in the polity. And I think we are seeing out there a change in the polity. Do you see those changes as as band-aids, you know, an effort to appease a frustrated population? Or do you see them as something more systemic than that? I, I think and hope that we are seeing something systemic. At the root of this is systemic racism. One of the really gratifying things about this moment is not only organizing and protests, but white folks organizing and protesting. And we will not get this right until we address the systemic factors that have blocked reform and made everything else up till now a Band-Aid. The laws that protect officers when they shoot people, that allow them to get their stories straight before they are interviewed by investigators, the inability of police managers to discipline their own people because their right to do that has been taken away in collective bargaining, the the arbitration mechanisms that mean that, that officers who have done awful things are returned to their jobs, that the lack of oversight so that officers who actually get fired can go a county over and and get back on the adjoining force. Those are systemic factors, and maybe now we've got a chance. That was Professor David Kennedy. He's the director of the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. As virtual school lets out for so many students this month, state education officials have released guidelines on how schools might reopen campuses safely this fall. Facial coverings, temperature checks, and spacing of students per public health guidelines are among several of the recommendations. Mary Jane Burke is head of Marin County Schools, which has already been piloting small in-person classes for students with special learning needs for the past three weeks. There's a high anxiety at so many levels on this that we just have to be, I think, kind to each other, 
but also be clear, it's not are we going to open school. It's what are the conditions that need to be in place because we got to get kids back into classrooms. Burke says her district will be increasing the total number of students in schools to 300 next week and are prepared to work with the county to trace the contacts of any student who tests positive. Now to the state's court system, which has been paralyzed over the last few months, first by the pandemic and then by protests, which forced courts to close just as trials were starting to resume. KQED's Shiraz Sadiq reports on how California courts are trying to balance public safety with constitutional rights. At the Hall of Justice in San Jose, a death penalty trial is winding down. The proceedings have weathered suspensions due to both the pandemic and recent protests. It was the first trial to resume since the pandemic upended how we live, work, and now seek justice. And it could be a model for how courts proceed in the age of social distancing. Molly O'Neill, Santa Clara County's public defender, describes some of the changes in the courtroom. The jurors are not sitting next to each other. They're six feet apart. Everyone in the courtroom is wearing a face mask. Counsel are all six feet apart. When a lawyer is standing, examining a witness, they're at a podium surrounded by a pretty large piece of plexiglass wearing a mask. The prosecution rested its case against the defendant, who's facing a murder charge in mid-March. That was before the Santa Clara County Superior Court shut down because of COVID-19. The case resumed a month ago, but this time with protocols that the prosecution didn't have to grapple with during its presentation of evidence. O'Neill says the new safety measures put the defense at a disadvantage. The prosecution put its entire case on with jurors who were not socially distanced, with lawyers who weren't wearing masks, all live witnesses, and the defense now has socially distanced jurors, mostly remote witnesses. The prosecution certainly was advantaged by the fact that they conducted business in, in during normal circumstances. Angela Bernard is an attorney with the Santa Clara County DA's office. She acknowledges the changes in the courtroom, but doesn't think they impede the fairness of the trial. I think we all are going to have to make some sacrifices because of the pandemic. Wearing masks is one of the sacrifices that we're going to have to make. I don't think it's putting any undue burden on attorneys or jurors over and above what all of us are experiencing in having to do things to keep people safe. In the interest of safety, the court is encouraging witnesses to testify remotely by video conferencing. But O'Neill says cross-examining using this technology just isn't the same. You have the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses against you, and that is done obviously most effectively with an in-person witness. And while the pandemic has restricted our movement, it can't indefinitely restrict the pursuit of justice, says Bernard. Not going to be the way things were before the pandemic. It will be different, but defendants do have very important constitutional rights in this country. But because of COVID-19, O'Neill worries that jury pools may now be less reflective of the community. We want a big variety of people to come in so that we can get a fair cross-section of the community. And if we've lost old people and people from communities of color, then we are left with a cross-section of the community that doesn't adequately reflect who we are in Santa Clara County. And and that's going to impact the fairness of a trial. Jurors in the case are expected to deliver their initial verdict later this month. But the court is already looking ahead to new trials. It summoned 3,500 residents in the county to report to jury duty next Monday. For the California Report, I'm Shiraz Sadiq.
Finally this morning to downtown Oakland, which has been the site of massive protests in the past week and a half, and lately the site of an outdoor art gallery of sorts. Bonafide artists and amateurs alike have painted giant murals on the plywood covering windows of businesses there. On the sidewalk outside the Tribune building, I spoke with one person who's helped organize this mini-movement. My name is Jonathan Long, and I came down to help some friends and business owners sweep up after, uh, not this Friday, but the Friday before, and I put out a call for action to have some people come down and help with the mural, and the next day, 75 people showed up, and so I didn't want to lose that energy or momentum, and so we started having them prime plywood up and down the street to get ready for a painting. The next day, 75 people showed up, and the following day, probably about 150 people showed up, and people just kept coming and bringing paint and more stuff, and so not knowing what to do. We started sort of instructing them to go out into the community and start talking to business owners and priming the plywood just to maybe get it ready for muralists if that was a possible thing. And here we are now with nine full city blocks primed and almost entirely covered with murals, mostly from Oakland artists, which is pretty amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, and this is not me. This is Oakland. This is our community. This is everybody chipping in and just running with it entirely. You know, ultimately, like, people want to put what they're feeling somewhere right now, right? There's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of need to heal, and there's a lot of need to participate. And so at the end of the day, people are looking to park that somewhere. And you can park it at nighttime in a protest, which is important and valuable. Or you can come here and park it in something that's a little more enduring and taking those same messages and making them more palatable to the people who really need to understand them. That's Jonathan Long in Oakland on providing another way to participate in the moment we are in. Check out some photos, including a contribution by the Jamali family. They're on Twitter. I'm at Lily Jamali. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, June 9th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Be well and have a great rest of your day. Support for the California Report comes from the California Earthquake Authority, urging Californians to prepare to survive and recover from the next damaging earthquake. Learn more at earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts.
to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!